But you know human beings, we are like a plantain in the fire. If you don't turn it around, definitely one part will get burned. It means that you don't have holistic food in your mouth. And therefore, we'll keep on educating the populace. But if you look at Sunyan environment, you could see that people are ready to wear or put on their masks. And some of them also observe the social distancing. However, there's more room for improvement. Welcome to our culture. This is Niko Tainikwe. This is episode 6. Today, we will further explore the government's messaging during this global pandemic. We also will briefly touch on the Ghanaian media and its role within the society. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and mother figures out there. Thank you and may you reclaim your well-deserved time. Wishing you all the best, success and good health. But before we focus on the topics of today's episode, we will talk about yet another police altercation that has resulted in the death of another young man. You see yesterday the policeman, what he done is very unconscious. Because it's not easy to come and kill a man who's supposed me, who, who give me food to eat. The policeman wanted to catch him. But the whole thing is like, you two not going to stand there because you, you don't have anything inside your pocket. If you send it to the police station, it's going to be a long process, you get me? So me, after me, I will not agree for you to catch him. I'll run. So he ran to the, the that water side. The lagoon. You see? Then we entered there. The time I was there, I wanted to come and remove him from the lagoon. The policeman told me that if I enter there, he will shoot me. Recall, we haven't even gotten any feedback on the investigation about the military officer killing of Eric Ofuchu, a resident of Ashamai. But in this case, after the man drowned in the Odona, a group of young men angered by his death marched to Adabraka police station and deposited his lifeless body. They also damaged some property. As usual, mainstream media coverage amplified the destruction of property as if it was at par with the avoidable death of a human being. Maxwell Lagbagba just returned from a community around Odona where residents vandalized police vehicles after they blamed police officers for uh, disallowing them to rescue a neighbor. This incident is unsurprising. Recall, residents in some of these low-income communities are typically the ones to endure the violence of police swoops. This was done by organization of operational swoops across the breadth and width of um, the metropolis. So all the divisional commanders, all the unit commanders, every one of us had to go to the various criminal hideouts where we suspect we have um, these criminals. And uh, as part of um, our soup, we were able to arrest over 178 suspected criminals. Public relations officer for the police in Accra, ASP Ifiatengi. In these swoops, the police, and sometimes with the military, arrest dozens of people they claim could be engaged in criminal activity. For instance, in September 2019, 410 so-called suspected criminals were picked up in a joint military and police swoop. Out of that 410, 12 were to be prosecuted for various drug offenses. 
These folks included traders, porters, drivers, and some unemployed folks who lived in Adenta and Medina. But make we be clear, this be gross violation of human rights. The police just they arrest so-called suspects and later then they go screen them, so say they go prosecute them if they find something. Often, these so-called suspects are stripped down to their underwear and paraded in front of media cameras. Kai, these people haven't really been charged with anything. The police just the fish. Alec, for understand, these so-called criminal suspects are targeted primarily because of where they stay. The police, they claim, say these places be criminal hideouts. But it's funny how apathy areas like East Legon never seem to be the site of police swoops. The police know they share the criteria for what be a criminal hideout or who be suspected criminal. At times, the possession of certain items become automatic evidence of criminal activity, a laptop or suspected leaves. Apart from that, we had over 200 uh, motorbikes. Most of them are unregistered. And even those that have even been registered, they even had fake registration number plates and what have you. We also had... Um, pump action, that is two pump action weapons together with a number of cartridges, dried leaves suspected to be Indian hemp. We also had some laptops from some foreign nationals we arrested. Then again, we had um, some box of seeds that the police strongly suspect was marijuana. Charlie, when these violence rules happen, critical questions are often unasked. And this further normalizes this form of police violence and terror often targeted at particular communities. Charlie, media folks need to ask hard questions and offer more nuance on these matters. As we can talk the government's messaging during this pandemic, we will briefly examine one a general media space. But first, make I acknowledge that May 3rd was World Press Freedom Day. We set aside a day in a year to observe World Freedom Press Freedom Day in order to appreciate this significant role of the media mm, and to wage struggles to ensure that the media can thrive so that we all can also thrive. In the World Press Freedom Ranking, Ghana dropped from 27 to 30. When a current ranking be partly due to the murder of Ahmed Swali, who was part of the Tiger Eye PI team that produced the documentary exposing corruption in Ghanaian football. Indeed, even a 2018 Afrobarometer survey shows say one in three Ghanaians support media freedom, which be about 36%, a sharp drop from 55% in 2014. Admittedly, many gains have been made in Ghana's media space, but make a highlight a few significant aspects of Ghana media. A 2018 report on media ownership indicated that private companies dominated the broadcasting space. The top four owners in the TV space had an audience share of 77.4%. They included Multimedia Group, Osei Kwame Despite's Despite Group of Companies, TV3 Network, which is a Media General Ghana Limited, and then the state-owned Ghana Broadcasting Corporation. The report further indicated that a third of media owners have some form of political connection or are directly state-owned. Of course, this has broad implications for press freedoms. For instance, instead of the past repressive control of media, we now observe what Joel and Fair they describe as soft control. He say, quote, soft control is exerted mainly by the state, but in contrast to the hard repression of the past, the state has no monopoly on it. 
Media owners also use soft control to rein in their journalists. It is a panoply of blandishments, inducements, and small blockages that media-savvy institutions employ to influence press coverage wherever market forces and a free press create an information hurly-burly. Education, training, and travel opportunities offered to working journalists are soft control. So are selective credentialing, selective access to government and business officials, scoops presented on a silver platter, and of course, gifts, unquote. Mohamed Shadow and Bosman Asari's study offers some interesting observations. For instance, a journalist from a state-owned newspaper stated, quote, As far as I'm concerned, as a journalist for the Daily Graphic, there is no need to be critical on an issue involving government because the story may not likely be published, and if it is even published, it will be in the inside pages. In my years working for Graphic, you need to take a favorable government angle to get a front page, unquote. In the case of private media, their study suggested that partisanship did not appear to be an issue because most journalists generally support the ideologies of the parties or individuals that sponsor or own them. For example, the editor of the Enquirer stated, quote, Sometimes the publisher brings a topic and tells me to toe a certain line, because he who pays the piper calls the tune. We are employees, and the publisher is our employer. So there have been situations where we've had to follow his dictates, unquote. The question we should be asking today is, does everybody feel free to express themselves? Do we feel free as journalists to do our work? Do we actually believe that we can do our work without hindrance and so on? I'm a practitioner. And I've been practicing journalism from 1969. You understand? And I have no doubt that today in Ghana, there are many, many, many constraints to free expression in our country. Clearly, partisan political interests, they shape media work. What stories get covered, how they are covered, and even where they are placed in the case of newspapers. Now, this background helps us appreciate the government's messaging in this pandemic. Thus far, the following have been used for communication. Press releases, press briefings, presidential addresses, posters on social media and offline, billboards, and mobile vans blasting public service announcements in communities. Yet, if you look closely, you go realize that the public education on COVID-19 actually became more visible after the first two cases were recorded on March 12. But the World Health Organization had declared COVID-19 a global health emergency on January 30th. So then what would they do for the whole month of February, Charlie? The chorus, We Are Prepared, is betrayed by what appears to be the late start of serious public education. Indeed, the Information Services Department, ISD, started a nationwide public education campaign of COVID-19 at Nima Market in Accra on March 26, 2020. Charlie, this be two months after the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global health emergency. In fact, workers served for the Information Services Department. They used their own money to repair cinema vans. This was captured on the ISD Services website as follows. Quote, the Municipal Information Officer of East Gonja Municipality, Mr. Seydou Al-Amin, and the 
and the assistant mobile cinema operator, Imoro Seidu, in a rare display of dedication to duty, have repaired the office's cinema van registered GV4367 at the cost of 1,800 Ghana CDs at their own expense. Also, Kai, when the National Civic Education announced it, then get only 100 CDs per district, so say they go do COVID-19 education. Beyond a late start to public education, we also think about the effectiveness of the messaging. There have been a lot of concerns that folks are not following preventative etiquette. Often, then they frame this conversation say people be too stubborn or they're being disciplined. This be too simple. We also understand the why. Why are they not complying? Yet, you will be hard-pressed to find any study that has evaluated the effectiveness of public education campaigns. Perhaps we might find out that poor compliance for preventative etiquette is not simply a messaging issue, but a problem of socio-economic circumstance. Importantly, intervention should also account for social context, that is, how people live. As I talked before, Minister Pon Krumah has admittedly offered some transparency and accountability, particularly through his choreographed press briefings. Journalists are afforded the opportunity to ask questions. For me, this is actually the most interesting part of the briefings. On the other hand, I'm frustrated that these public briefings have become a platform for private companies to make public donations, which in itself becomes a form of PR. Mind you, they can claim these donations as expenses for tax purposes. In effect, their taxes are waived. To be clear, tax waivers are lost revenue to the public. As we record more cases, government messaging has increasingly become more visibly pro-government propaganda in a way that downplays some of the shortcomings of their handling of COVID-19. Minister Opon Krumah has over the past weeks developed a knack for spinning existing data in ways that are at times disingenuous and actually dangerous in this fight against COVID-19. His selective interpretations are often incomplete. We get it, this be election year. You also won't look good, so say you no go lose the elections. But therefore no come at the expense of the honesty and transparency needed to fight this pandemic. As cases start to catch the thousands, it was primarily framed as, oh, the cases are high because we are testing more. So to explain the numbers that have gone up, please don't be alarmed. It is because we are aggressively testing. We had to do a second test for those in mandatory quarantine. And then the enhanced uh, surveillance that has started is what is bringing these numbers, just so that we are guided accordingly. This is partially true. But the numbers are also up because it indicates a failure to contain and also community spread. As public health folks like Nana Kofi Kwachi also pointed out, early messaging focusing on imported cases shaped perceptions of risk. Early on, a lot of the description of the epidemic was that it was a matter of imported cases who were tracking and tracing, which was true. In every country apart from China, it was a case of a situation of imported cases. So if you're able to track the ones you're getting, trace them, test them and isolate them, you would make some gains. But quite obviously, if you look at our data, for example, on March 20th, when we had 16 cases, three of them had no travel history and no, no, no um, um, confirmed contact with any infected person. So it was quite clear that even then we had local transmission going on. But, in, but framing it as a problem of travelers and importation can, can skew the perception in the general public about what the, the general local threat is. Another talking point that is bandied about is the idea that we have a low death rate and most of our confirmed cases are mild to moderate. If you look at the cur currently the mortality for Ghana, and it's important, this tells you the picture about the virus. The mortality for the virus in Ghana now is 0.45%. What does it mean? If a thousand people get the virus in Ghana, you lose four lives. Unfortunately, I go to 
But what is the uh, mortality if you take 18 then? Yeah, what 18? We've had 18. Deaths. Yes, so eight, 18. Are you looking for the percentage? If you divide 18 deaths by total number of cases, okay, the mortality rate is 0 0.5, 45. It means for a thousand positive cases, you lose like four lives. Dr. Okoboy, Deputy Minister of Health. Yet, researchers have found that COVID-19 can present with long-term health conditions even when cases are mild and folks recover. As virologist Peter Piot, the director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine stated, quote, Many people think COVID-19 kills 1% of patients and the rest get away with some flu-like symptoms. But the story gets more complicated. Many people will be left with chronic kidney and heart problems. Even their neural systems is disrupted. There will be hundreds of thousands of people worldwide, possibly more, who would need treatments such as renal dialysis for the rest of their lives. The more we learn about coronavirus, the more questions arise. We are learning while we are sailing. That's why I get so annoyed by many commentators on the sidelines who, without much insight, criticize the scientists and policymakers trying hard to get this epidemic under control. This is very unfair, unquote. So the point be say, if we prevent infections in the first place, it will be difficult to say that when our healthcare systems go free accommodate a sudden surge of patients who may require care for chronic kidney conditions. Charlie, even now, we know the fee handle adequately when our cases. The latest concern about government messaging be the claims say we have peaked. Plotted, and as it indicates, the date on which they had the single largest number of positives, which is what some interpret to mean the peak, is what you see there on the 25th. Since then, they have not had a single day on which they have had such large numbers. And because they don't have a backlog to clear, they don't expect to have such large numbers on a single day anymore if we are all complying with the preventive etiquette as has been outlined. Minister Opon Kuma. This message and its representations are emblematic of the challenges many folks, particularly in the public health community, have about the state's messaging and issues over data access. Now, I'll explain regarding the, the peaking issue. So what's happening, as I said, is that we're detecting more cases, but then we're telling people that these cases are an account of expanded surveillance and not the expanded um, epidemic spread, when in fact we are not measuring the spread. So this is where I, as an academic, get a bit uncomfortable because we are, in fact, showing just one part of the picture, which is true, and maybe perhaps turning a blind eye to the fact that we do not know what the other part of the picture looks like. And the, the fact is, or the painful thing is that time will always reveal the true picture. Dr. John Amwaisi. Yet the more vexing government messaging is its pro-party propaganda. But the veil was lifted completely when the whole vice president, Dr. Barmia, decided to use a public-sponsored platform to claim that the NPP had handled the pandemic better than the NDC handled Doomsaw. If you want to test the robustness of an economy, you test it in a time of crisis. Thankfully, we have had two crises. Under the NDC, there was an internally generated crisis, which was Doomsaw. Under uh, the presidency of Nana Akufuado, there has been an externally generated crisis, which has been the global uh, coronavirus pandemic. I just want you to ask yourselves, how have these two crises been managed?
the Doomsaw Crisis, which crippled this economy for four years. What were the mitigating measures offered to businesses and individuals during Doomsaw? This was an internally generated crisis. What be the connection, sir, Fanudibab? Subsequently, there was backlash over what folks described as the politicization of the pandemic. But this is actually partisan politics as usual. Minister Okpon Krumah fired back. If we don't want politics in this matter like we are preaching it, when people start politicizing it, the faith-based groups, the religious leaders, the civil society organizations, the media, call it out that this is politics, let's put it aside and focus on the enemy. If you don't, the other side also has politicians. They will start politicizing it and we will be the collective losers. No, 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 Minister Ponkuma. This take is a bit disingenuous. Let's be clear. This is an election year, and a huge part of government public relations is aimed at making the new Patriotic Party, the MPP administration, look like they are effectively handling the pandemic when cases are now hitting 4,000. Yes, they partly claim that their messaging is aimed at reducing fear and panic, but spreading a false sense of safety know they help too. To be sure... The government is supposed to use public resources to support us and not use it for petty partisanship. This is why it is disingenuous to ask us to hold the NDC folks to the same set of standards. They are not in government. They do not control public resources. And didn't they lose their elections? Minister Ponkuma should understand that they shouldn't be using our public resources and platforms for this type of trivial partisan politics. Are you being paid with public resources to use public's time to engage in petty partisanship? If you want to do petty partisanship, do a press conference at your party headquarters on a weekend or after work or even on your lunch break. That is the point. One aspect of government messaging worth highlighting is its use of religion. During the week, a video emerged showing two women articulating how their faith in God would protect them from COVID-19. Remember when we escaped Ebola, some claim we were blessed? The government also set the tone and echoed similar sentiments at the beginning of the pandemic, from the prayer breakfast to the invocation of God in a way that seemed like we couldn't have been better prepared to fight this pandemic. In the midst of this pandemic, we need transparency and accountability in our public messaging. The government's PR machine must be geared towards providing timely information in a way that communicates the urgency of the situation without causing unnecessary panic. Above all, it must be honest. It must acknowledge its mistakes and be receptive to constructive critique. Music by Ayande. 